We're reading from Romans chapter 13 and verses 1 through 7. Romans 13, beginning at verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Dear Father, I pray this morning that you will pierce our hearts with this passage. This is a tough passage. Lord, pray that you will humble us. Pray that you will make us to see clearly what you're declaring and what you're requiring of us as your children for the reputation of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Good morning. Beautiful morning. If you want to get a group of evangelical Christians in America riled up, all you have to do is start talking about what's wrong with government and with those who govern. I'm convinced that a, a pretty sizable percentage of the conversations and emails and Facebook posts that originate from Christians are about that very topic. And yes, some of those have come from me. In Micah 6.8, there's a very well-known declaration that God, exhortation that God presents through the prophet. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It would seem at times that we think the command to do justly is equivalent to the command to be chronically outraged over the injustices, inequities, and abuses of government. (laughs) Is that God's assignment for us? More to the point of this passage. Does the command to do justly mean that because those who rule over us are often unjust, that that exempts us from submitting to them. 
Many Jews in Jesus' day were waiting eagerly for the arrival of Messiah. Because they had the strong and Bible-based expectation that Messiah would be the one who would come and rule in perfect righteousness and justice. He would put an end to the injustices under which the Jews at that time suffered the injustices of the Roman Empire. He would restore Israel to its rightful place as the nation beloved of God, the nation that would rule all nations. But as we know, that's not what Jesus did. And the fact that he didn't was one of the key reasons that the religious leaders in Israel refused to embrace him as Messiah and called for him to be crucified. But if you listen to the rhetoric of many Christians today, it would seem that we're expecting and even demanding that God do now what Jesus did not do then. That he replace unjust and ungodly rulers with just and godly ones. That he right the wrongs in our government and our culture. And that he restore our nation to its ostensibly godly roots. And we conclude that until he does, our submission to the governing authorities, uh, authorities in this depraved and fallen culture is a relative matter. That there are many areas in which we simply don't have to submit, particularly when it comes to any actions on the part of government that seem to threaten our precious, God-given rights. And even though by and large we submit day to day to those things that government requires of us, many of us do so with a huge chip on our shoulders and with much grumbling and complaining. Beloved, the passage we're examining this morning could not possibly stand against that mindset more forcefully than it does. It speaks in stark and uncompromising terms about God's call to us to submit to those in authority and to honor those in authority. I've read this passage hundreds of times in my Christian life. But as I wrestled this week with the words that Paul presents to us here, I came to uh, a very clear realization that I've done a lousy job of doing what this passage commands. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. My prayer this morning is that we will all have the humility to hear and to heed what God is saying to us through Paul in this very important passage because it affects our witness. It affects the reputation of Jesus Christ. It affects and has a very direct impact on whether we live as God's ambassadors in a joyful way or in a discontented and joyless way. Because we're distracted by burdens that have no place in the lives of God's children. Whose hope is not here. Now I'm going to undoubtedly slay a few sacred cows this morning. 
All I can ask is that you test my words against God's word. That's all I can ask. And if, if my words don't match, then reject them. I'm going to skip the where we're going part because of time, <clears throat> and we'll see it, the outline as it unfolds. The first thing that Paul does is he presents in verses 1 and 2 a summary exhortation with a warning. The exhortation is that we are to be in subjection to governing authorities because they are appointed by God. And the warning is that those who oppose God-given authorities receive judgment upon themselves. 13 verses 1 and 2. He starts with the exhortation. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. And then he immediately presents the basis for that exhortation. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. And then he gives the ramifications for us of that exhortation and that basis. He says, therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Now, we'd be a lot happier if Paul pulled his punches a little bit here, right? (laughs) If he at least acknowledged that there are abuses on the part of human governments that should exempt us from having to always submit to them. But like it or not, Paul takes the same approach in this passage that he took in the very last one, in chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, when he said, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And he said, Never seek your own revenge. No exceptions. He speaks here in terms that are just as absolute as those. He does not say, be in in subjection to governing authorities that rule well. He does not say, be subject to those who rule in a way that proves they are submitted to God. In fact, he doesn't even say, just be subject to those authorities that come from God. Instead, he says, every Authority on this earth is established by God and we must be submitted to it. He says there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. I can't conceive of any words Paul could have used here that could be clearer or more emphatic. Can you? We look at these statements and our minds immediately start grinding with all manner of exceptions that we wish were in the text. (laughs) But Paul not only does not entertain our qualifications, he unapologetically shoots them down and declares that these commands can't be watered down. Wow. He says as straightforwardly as words permit that there is no authority except from God. So when we as God's children refuse to submit to those authorities... We oppose Him. And then He gives us a warning. He says, They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, the word condemnation there is translated judgment in many versions, and that, I believe, is a 
far superior translation. There's no basis for taking this as a reference to eternal condemnation. The word in this context applies to the punishment inflicted by government on us when we refuse to submit to it. It's talking about temporal, not eternal judgment. Paul's point is straightforward. If you rebel against God-given authority, which is all authorities, you can fully expect that God will use that same authority to punish you. That's how he set it up. Our submission to God, our humility before God reflected by that submission, is of prime importance to God. Now, there are many contexts in Scripture in which each of us is called to submit to other humans in some capacity, right? Parents, husbands, employers, masters, elders, and deacons, and in this passage, government officials. And in every single case in which God calls us to submit to others as an expression of our submission to him, he presents that Exhortation just as forcefully as he does here. Failure to submit to any of the the authorities that God has placed over us incurs his corrective judgment because he's told us what we must do and when we don't do it, he corrects us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gives what I see as his assignment to governing authorities, or maybe I should say regarding governing authorities, but the information is given to us, the church. And he says, first, that he calls governing authorities to dispense praise to those who do good. He says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. And then he immediately goes to the negative and he says that government is also called to dispense wrath upon those who do evil. He says, if you do what is evil, verse 4, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, our first uh, response when we see Paul's words in this passage is to wonder what planet he's been on. (laughs) His words seem terribly naive to us, as if he had led such a sheltered life that he actually thought human governments acted this way. That they always reward good and punish evil. But guys, Paul was clearly not ignorant of how governments work. He was not ignorant of the unjust behaviors and abuses that are perpetrated by human authorities. You know how I know that? Because Paul was one of those authorities. By his own admission, Paul had been one of those who abused the authority that God gave to him. Before he was Paul, he was named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was a a vigorous persecutor of the followers of the way, the, the followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the day he got saved, he was on his 
way to Jerusalem to arrest some more Christians. Before the resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and blinded him in order to make him see, Paul was an abuser of authority. He acted with the authority of the Jewish leaders who in turn derived their authority from the Roman government who allowed them to act as a subordinate authority over the Jewish people. Now, Paul was also very aware of the exile of Jews from the city of Rome that had occurred under the emperor Claudius in 49 AD during his own lifetime. And that was most certainly considered an unjust act on the part of Rome. And there were countless other injustices and abuses of authority that the Romans perpetrated on a constant basis, along with doing a lot of things that government should do. Now, considering all of this, how could Paul now write in these verses that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil? And that government authorities are a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. How could he say that? I believe the answer lies in recognizing that Paul is not writing this as a handbook for government. He's talking to the church. And he's writing to us to explain God's design for using governing authorities in their dealings with us. Above all, he's writing to tell us how we must act in relation to those whom he has placed in authority over us. His perfect purpose is not to give us a standard to which we can then hold our rulers. His purpose is to give us a standard to which we will hold ourselves. See, it's not our assignment to make governing authorities act in a godly manner. It's our assignment to submit to governing authorities in a godly manner and to act in submission to God himself as we do so. Lenny mentioned an example in the worship this morning of a government that was corrupt and godless, the Egyptians, that treated a man who acted in a godly way pretty well, exalted him, to the position of second in command over the entire kingdom. That was Joseph. There are a number of examples like that in Scripture. See, Paul is saying that when we do that which is good, God will use the authorities that he has placed over us, even corrupt ones, to bestow praise upon us. And he's saying that when we do that which is evil, God will use those in authority to dispense wrath to us in order to correct us. And when government oversteps God's purposes by abusing its authority, you know what? Our well-being is not threatened. Because our well-being does not come from government, our well-being comes from God. So God's talking here about our assignment. By the way, we tend to think that a person or entity can only be considered God's agent if it is a willing and submitted agent. And that's absolute hogwash. That would make God less than sovereign over his own creation. <laughs> if God could speak prophetic truth to an evil king, Balak, through a conniving prophet, Balaam, and then he could speak 
to that evil prophet through his donkey, then God can do whatever He wants through whomever He wants, whenever He wants. God used an evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, and a godless, ruthless, mercenary army, the Chaldeans, to lay siege to Jerusalem and to carry the Judaites, God's own covenant people, away to Babylon in order to humble them according to his intent. And you know what? He told Judah in advance that it would be futile for them to attempt to withstand that judgment. They shouldn't even try. He commanded them to submit to the godless Babylonians and to go away willingly into captivity to a land that worshipped false gods. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to act as his agents to carry out his will, even though they were not his people. Verse 5, Paul moves from talking about what government does in the hands of God to our assignment. He kind of zeroes in and he says, Wherefore, it is necessary for us to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Let's take those two parts. First, we are to be in subjection because of wrath. He said, he just said in verse four that government authorities are a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And now he says, be in subjection because of wrath. I think he's saying fear is a legitimate motivator. <laughs> Just ask any well-disciplined child if fear is a legitimate motivator. But fear of punishment is not the only motivator, nor is it the most superior motivator. The superior motivator is conscience. And so Paul says, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now what does Paul mean when he says to be in subjection for conscience' sake? Well, in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 20, Peter says a lot of the same stuff. He says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You see, he's saying, he's talking about government doing the same things. Thank you, brother. And then at the end of that, in verse 17, he says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then he makes a segue into talking about servants and masters without skipping a beat. And he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience... Toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Conscience toward God. That's what you and I should be all about. (laughs) We are not to submit grudgingly and with a complaining heart to the authorities that God has placed over us, even if they are unjust. 
We are to submit to them as unto God. We are to submit to them as an act of submission to God. Isn't that exactly how Paul says submission within marriage works? In Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. How? As to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. As to the Lord. Isn't that the same way Paul says that slaves are to submit to their masters? Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 7, he says, Slaves, be obedient to your to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And he says, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. He says it about five times, that it is that, that what he's telling you to do, you do as unto the Lord, not as unto men. That's how in Colossians he says we're supposed to do everything. That's how it works in every relationship in which God commands us to submit to another human being. He says we're to do it from the heart as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Got it? Okay, we got that. That's important. Now think about that for a minute. What would you think of a wife who says, I understand that God commands me to respect and submit to my husband. And then she spends most of her time grumbling and complaining and finding fault and talking to all her friends about everything that's wrong with her husband. And then she nags him and manipulates him and does everything that she can to get him to, to get her way. Would you call that godly submission? Okay, let's take that same scenario and then kind of move it over to the realm of submission to government. If a man says, okay, I agree, God tells me to submit to government. And then he spends a whole bunch of his time grumbling and complaining and finding fault and pointing out to his friends and everyone that will listen everything that's wrong with that government. Would you call that submission to government? God doesn't. The critical question here is, whose assignment are you actually keeping? (laughs) If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, please hear this. We fail in our assignment regarding submission to human in human relationships because we are focused on the other person's assignment instead of ours. And that's true not just in in the realm of submission to governing authorities. It's true in all kinds of relationships in which God calls us to submission. Marriage is a big one. The surest way to mess up your marriage is to take it upon yourself to make your spouse be godly. Instead of entrusting your spouse's godliness to the only one who has any sovereignty over the hearts of men. God calls you and your marriage to focus your attention on treating your spouse as God has treated you. You love, you forgive, you forbear, you serve as God has done all those things toward you.
That's your assignment. And if your spouse doesn't do what he or she is supposed to do, that's God's problem. You just keep doing your assignment. God says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. (laughs) And we arrogantly say back to God, sure thing, God, I'll get right on that. As soon as my wife starts respecting me the way you told her she's supposed to. And God says back to us, wrong answer. What I require of your wife is my problem. What I require of you is your problem. Now this doesn't mean that God will never use you as his instrument to humbly and lovingly point out another person's sin and call that person to obedience. That's part of what we do in the body of Christ. It simply means it is not your assignment from God to bring about that obedience. As soon as we make that our assignment, we forget ours. The same principle applies in our relationship to governing authorities. Is there any fundamental difference in principle between saying on the one hand, according to God, my wife is supposed to respect me, and saying on the other hand, according to God, my government is supposed to treat me justly. In neither case does God make me responsible to him to bring about the godly behavior of the other party. It's his job. It cannot be my job because it infinitely exceeds the boundaries of my sovereignty because I have no sovereignty. I have no ability to turn the heart of anyone. Only God does. God calls those whom he has placed in positions of authority to act justly, to dispense praise to those who do good and wrath toward those who do evil, and to do both in submission to him. That's his assignment to them. His assignment to us is to submit to those authorities, not to fix them so that they're worthy of our submission. It's interesting that when they act unjustly or abuse their authority, they're accountable to God. But when we fail to submit to them, we're accountable both to them and to God because God has placed them over us. Now, I know very well that this doesn't fit very nicely with the highly unusual American context in which government is accountable to those whom it governs. We don't live in a monarchy. We are blessed to live in a democratic republic that is that is fixed supposedly by a constitution. And so we actually can influence the way our government behaves. And we should. In theory, our king is we the people. But beloved, as the children of God, as bond slaves of Jesus Christ, we better be very careful about how we handle that notion. First of all, regardless of what our founding fathers declared to be true at the level of man's accountability to man and of government's accountability to the governed, the reality for us who rightly understand God's holiness and our sinfulness is that the only inalienable, God-given human right that we or anyone else has is the right to go to hell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 3.23. And the wages, what we've earned, what we deserve, because of that sin is death, and that death is eternal. So if we want what we've earned, if we want what we deserve, if we're insisting on our inalienable God-given human rights, then all we're left with is a one-way ticket to hell. That's not what we want. Knowing that one fact clears up a multitude of false expectations. (laughs) There are churches that would fire me for making those statements, but this is not one of them. There's a huge difference between government's God-given responsibility and our God-given rights. We are slaves of the Most High God. Yeah, it's true that in Christ we've been made sons and heirs, fellow heirs with Christ of God. But guys, that's a gift, not a right. For a believer in Jesus Christ to get all enamored with the notion that our King is us is an abomination to God. Our one and only King is God. In verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us a concluding exhortation to render to all what is due them. He says, for because of this, because we are called to submit to government and government is established by God, because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We don't get to determine what is due to to the governing authorities. God does. And he tells us to do these things. By the way, the word custom just means like a toll that you have to pay that's required by government for any, any, a number of different things. The rest of those I think are pretty straightforward. Now let's, uh, let's get a little practical. How do we put this submission into practice? Well, Paul has a first-of-all statement in 1 Timothy 2 that has to do with praying, with thanksgiving. He says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you see the connection between, between praying for those in authority over us and the propagation of the gospel. God desires that men will be saved. Are we praying regularly for those whom God has placed in positions of authority over us? For their salvation? For their submission to God? For their willingness to allow or even facilitate the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. Are we thanking God for what he is doing through those authorities? I talked earlier about the fact that uh, a lot of us spend a bunch of time grumbling and complaining about the injustices and abuses of government. The question is, Can you grumble and be thankful at the same time? I can't. And God says, in everything, give thanks. 
He commands us to, to pray for those in authority and to be thankful. Now, with all that's wrong about the behavior of those who public off, hold public office or who exercise all kinds of authority over us in America, there's a whole lot that's right by the grace of God. There are many, many benefits that you and I receive every single day because of the institutions, the authorities that God has placed over us. If you just give that a little bit of thought, you'll find that you've got a lot to be thankful for. We are called to give far more attention to those blessings than we give to the failings of those whom God has placed over us. Is that what we're doing? I believe God is renewing the priority of prayer in this local body, and I am very thankful for that. I praise God for those whom he's brought into our body and those who have labored diligently for many years to move us toward a greater priority on prayer. This passage should be a wake-up call to us with regard to prayer for those who are in authority over us. May we not disregard it. (laughs) May we pray thankfully to God, who sovereignly uses the authorities he has placed over us to bless us in a multitude of ways. And that includes correction sometimes. So, we pray for those in authority with thanksgiving, also, we honor those in authority. In uh, Romans thirteen six and 7, Paul gives us this list, render to all what is due them. And the last thing, the last words, honor to whom honor is due. That's the exact same word that he used in chapter 12, verse 10, when he told us to outdo one another in showing honor within the body of Christ. It's the same word that Paul, that Peter uses in the verb form in 1 Peter 2.17 when he commands us to honor the king. The word, as we talked about last week, the word to honor means to place a high value on and it means to speak of and treat that person or object in such a way that others place a high value on it. That's what honoring means. When we honor someone as the Bible commands, not only do we demonstrate that we value them, we speak in a manner that increases the value that others place on them. Is that what we're doing? To dishonor means to treat someone as common, to diminish the value that others ascribe to them. Which is it? Are we honoring or dishonoring those whom God has put an authority over us? When you look at this issue in Scripture, and you, you look at those who had really good cause to dishonor the authorities over them, it's very eye-opening. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find David's eulogy to King Saul and to Saul's son Jonathan. If you recall, Saul had unjustly sought to kill David from the time of David's youth until he was nearly 30 years old. But in his eulogy to Saul and Jonathan, David extols the courage of Saul and Jonathan on the field of battle and calls them both valiant warriors. And then he declares to Israel the great benefits that accrued to Israel under Saul's rule. And he says not one unkind word about the king who sought his life. 
about the king whom David throughout his youth referred to as God's anointed. He speaks only words of honor. When King Darius came to the mouth of the lion's den on the morning after his own foolish decree had resulted in Daniel being unjustly thrown into that pit to be torn to shreds by the lions, the first words out of Daniel's mouth when he saw the king standing at the top of that pit was, O king, live forever. Which was a customary greeting of honor and submission that subjects in the kingdoms of that age used when addressing their kings. Those are two examples of godly men who honored those whom God had placed in authority over them, even though those rulers used that authority to do things that were unjust and ungodly and that hurt them, that hurt the men who were honoring them. Can we say that our words and our jokes and our emails and our Facebook posts do the same as those two men did? Or do we instead, in the name of exercising our inalienable God-given right to freedom of speech, defame and belittle and slander those whom God has placed in authority over us? This matters to God. It impacts our reputation among men, and thus it impacts the reputation of Christ whom we represent. We pray for those in authority with thanksgiving. We honor those in authority. And we participate. Since we do live in a democratic republic rather than a monarchy, I believe one of the ways we practice submission is through participation. I have a hard time with Christians saying they don't vote because there's so much corruption in government that it's pointless to vote. What are they? Are they without corruption? It's like saying, you know, I'm going to go find a church where there's no hypocrites. Don't do that because you'll ruin it. (laughs) I believe voting is a civic responsibility and as such is an act of submission to the authorities that God has placed over us. Submission through participation will, for some of us, include more than just voting. It'll include campaigning and advocating for certain issues. And as long as we are doing all those things joyfully as unto the Lord and not as unto men, they're good things. As soon as we start doing them from a heart that is discontented and grumbling and complaining and self-focused, they become not just useless in the hands of God, they compromise the reputation of Jesus Christ. All right, so we pray with thanksgiving. We honor those in authority. We participate. And here's the big one. We actually submit. The most critical thing we do to practice God's command to submit to governing authorities is to submit to them and to do so joyfully rather than begrudgingly. We've already talked about the meaning and the scope of biblical submission, so let's do it by God's enablement. By the way, Paul says, tax to whom taxes do. (laughs) Have you ever paid your taxes with the same attitude you have when you give your offering at church? 
If both are paid as unto the Lord, then it's supposed to be the same attitude. Wouldn't there be a lot more joy in paying our taxes if we had that attitude? (laughs) I'm talking to myself here too, guys. Where must we draw the line and refuse to obey human authorities? Everybody's been waiting for that shoe to drop, right? I think the best answer is that we don't, I'm going to blank that out. The best answer is we don't draw the line at all. God does. The notion that it's up to us misses the point seriously. I think I shared this with you before, but when my beloved daughter was a young teenager, she said to me once, Daddy, do I have to obey you guys even when you're acting crazy? And my answer to her was simple. I said, yes, sweetheart, you have to obey us unless we tell you to do something that God forbids. When Judah was under Babylonian captivity, four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know other names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for those last three, those were Babylonian names. Those four young men refused to eat food that God forbade them to eat. God was very clear with the Israelites about what they could eat and not eat. And God provided a way for them to be fed without violating his command. And they ended up stronger and healthier than all the guys that ate the Babylonian food. When everyone under Nebuchadnezzar's rule was commanded to bow down to a golden idol that Nebuchadnezzar had commissioned to be made, the three young men, we'll call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because it's so much more melodic, refused to do so and they were cast into a furnace of blazing fire. God protected them and they were completely unharmed. And there was one in the midst of the fire with them who was like the son, like a a son of God. Next king, King Darius, uh, decreed that, Darius, decreed that no one could pray to anyone other than him. And Daniel quietly disobeyed and prayed to the one true God. So we already talked a little bit about that story. Daniel was cast into the lion's den. And God shut the mouths of the lions and protected Daniel and delivered him. In none of those cases did those men receive a promise in advance that they would come out of those fearful situations unharmed. And God makes no such promise to us. But they obeyed God nonetheless, knowing that their lives and their well-being come from him, not from human government or from anything or anyone else. If and when those in authority over us demand that we sin against our God, our answer must always be no. I want to, in that vein, here since i got just a little bit of time, I want to raise this question. Do we have to pay taxes even if we know those tax dollars are being used for ungodly and unjust purposes like funding abortion clinics? Think about this. When Jesus and Paul and Peter addressed the matter of paying taxes, they never held us accountable for what the government does with our money. It's his money. And it wasn't because they naively thought the Roman government always did good things with those revenues. The taxes that Jesus told his disciples to render unto Caesar helped pay the salaries of the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. 
and the salary of Pilate who authorized his execution. And there will never be a greater act of governmental abuse and injustice than that one. Here's a sacred cow. Rather than saying, they'll get my gun when they pry it from my cold, dead fingers, shouldn't I be saying, my guns are not my source of security? A gun may be in use, a useful instrument. If God calls me to act as his agent to protect the life of another person or to protect my own life, but a gun will never be my source of security. Because God is my one and only source of security. There is no other. Anything else is just an instrument that God can take or leave at his own pleasure. So if the government wants my guns, they can have them. I won't do it happily. But I pray to God that I won't do it in such a way that the world looks at me and thinks my security is my gun. Rather than weeping and wailing and gnashing my teeth over the futility of government taking some of my hard-earned money and burying a bunch of it in an in a inefficient bureaucracy and then giving some of it to people who could work but don't choose to, shouldn't I be saying... The money that God has entrusted to me is His in the first place, and the government that He has put in authority over me is that which He says in no uncertain terms He has established. So if the government determines to take some of my money and use it in ways I don't see as wise, isn't that God's problem and not mine? Isn't it inevitable that governing authorities made up of sinners like me are going to do a lot of things wrong? Isn't it inevitable that if government was made up entirely of people just like me, it would still do a lot of things wrong? So why am I all hot and bothered when government goofs up? See, it all goes back to what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. He said, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if hope, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Brothers, we've said it before. We are not called to look around. We are called to look forward and upward. Why is the church in America burning up truckloads of energy and effort and passion, fretting and lamenting about what our government does and what our culture does? Why does any of that matter much to us? The world looks at us and rather than seeing a joyful and contented people who delight in that which God has already given to us in Christ and who find our hope only in that which God has laid up for us in Christ, it sees a people fretful, discontented, longing to find security and peace and hope in the here and now and not finding it because it does not exist in the here and now. To the extent that that is happening, beloved, it has to stop. The day is drawing near for the return of our Lord. We need to be busy with the things that matter to Him. Pursue justice to the extent that it is reasonable and possible for you to do so. 
But don't expect justice here and now. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. But don't expect those things from godless men. And beloved, when we come together to worship God, let's make sure our focus is never on any hope we find here and now on this earth. Such a focus is unworthy of our God and Savior. Our focus must be on our true salvation and our true hope, and that's Jesus Christ. May this world always see that God is consuming our time and energy and passion with the things that matter for eternity. Loving Father, I cringe as I speak these words because I know that I am so guilty. I'm so guilty. And Father, I thank you for loving me and for, for being forbearing toward me. And I thank you, Lord, for, for giving us these words that are forceful and clear. Lord, we don't want, we don't want to be distracted and burdened by things that take other people's eyes off of Christ. We want people to look at us and and knowing that many of those people will, will have their very first glimpse of Christ when they look at us. And we want them to see the joy that we have as citizens of a city whose architect and builder is God. Father, pierce our hearts with these truths. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.